um, or it's not on your phone, then please feel free to grab one from um, one of these little tables in the middle. We would encourage people, uh, particularly for this series on Revelation, to, um, to read along as, um, as we open the word. Ryan's going to bring us the message, as I said, but firstly, over to you, Karen. Thank you. I didn't actually know it was going to be this long, by the way. <laughs> so, Revelations 13 and 14. The dragon stood on the, sh the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and each had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God, to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. <clears throat> if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed and it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast or the name of its number. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number is 666. And then Revelation 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder, the sound I heard was like that of harpers playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. 
no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who not, did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-air, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and the springs and water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridle, for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Good morning, Pathway. My name is Ryan, and I can't help but think Etienne saves the best for me. <laughs> That's a curly one. Um, so, yeah, I haven't written a sermon for quite a long time. So between studying, um, between going to the Solomon Islands and a whole bunch of other stuff going on this past four or so months, I've been very absent from this part of my role. Now, most of you probably know, and you've probably guessed already, uh, we've been working through the book of Revelation as a church for, oh, what's it been, a couple of months, six weeks, dish. Um, we've been shipping away at it for a while now. But I want to I firstly thank Etienne, uh, thank him for the way that he's faithfully unpacked it each week uh, and uh, been able to help us out with some bits and pieces throughout the book of Revelation. And uh, it's my turn now to try and do the same. And I suspect, just like most of you, 
uh, I was a little reluctant to take on the book of Revelation. It's a tough book to read, and uh, it, it presents even tougher questions, and it's really hard to know what to do with it all. So this morning, we're going to try and work through just a few things that we found in uh, Revelation chapter 13 and 14. Now, I suspect a lot of you are probably wondering what most do when this part of the Bible is read, this particular chapter in uh, chapter 13 in Revelation at the end. There has been and continues to be much debate about this talk of the mark of the beast, the number 666. Now, without diving in fully, I feel like it's appropriate to at least mention it here so as to kind of put it to bed for now. So the mark is placed where God's mark should be. To throw back to Deuteronomy 6 verse 8 in the Old Testament days where it says, uh, where they're instructed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Tie these commandments on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. This is God's figurative speech for taking these commands seriously so people can see them and that you see them when you do things. That's the rough idea of the location. So Satan's tried to do the same thing with forehead and hands. So what about the number? The number 666. It's uh, largely believed to simply just represent Nero. <laughs> a little bit of an anticlimax perhaps. So 666 is the numerical equivalent of the name and title of Nero Caesar, who was the Roman, Roman emperor around the time that Revelation was written. So when his name and title are written in Aramaic, it adds up to 666. Obviously, there is a lot of speculation about this and no one has ever been able to 100% prove anything. But it would seem that this is the most logical answer to what 666 represents. Those who have the mark of the beast have simply pledged their allegiance to something other than God. All right, I hope we put that whole 6-6 thing to bed. We're not going to go there again <laughs> this morning. We're going to look at some other stuff in this passage, which if you hadn't noticed, there's a lot in there. So, and another thing to note with Revelation, um, Etienne shared that movie around a few weeks ago, The Revelation in Five Minutes, and the guy said in there, it's very easy when we read Revelation to miss the forest for the trees meaning we can get bogged down in the little details and the little weird things found in the book of Revelation and miss the bigger, the bigger, grander picture that there is on offer there. So, I said to my wife this morning, this, uh, this is a little snapshot of what goes on in my brain when I read the Bible. So you're in for a wild ride today. Questions come and things, and you'll see we go down little rabbit holes here and there just to tick things off. But I hope you can stay with me. <laughs> so before we do fully go in, I'd like to stop and pray just for a moment. So if you could join me as we pray. Lord, this book is pretty hard to understand. I ask, we ask, that you would speak to us through it today. As we look at this text, would you please open our eyes to see what it is that you want us to see, to hear not my words, but yours, O oh God. And above all, may you be glorified in and through what we're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So today is going to be a little different to perhaps what we're normally, we normally hear at Pathway in that it is a more kind of fire and brimstone kind of message. We're often shown of a God who loves us like a father whose grace abounds. His love is completely unconditional. The loving grandparent kind of idea of God. Now this is not wrong. Don't get, don't get me wrong. That is not a wrong idea of God. Not at all. It is a part of who God is and what he is like. But he is more 
than simply that. He is just. He is the judge. He's fearsome and, quite frankly, terrifying. God, the loving God who cares for his children, but also a God, the God that will judge the earth, the God who will one day hold everyone accountable. Some people, just a few, a remnant, will be joining him for eternity in heaven, but most will be banished to hell. Obviously, holding these two ideas and characteristics of God is a difficult thing to do. There is a tension there. But it is what the Bible shows us of God, and in years gone by, this sort of view wasn't all that foreign among churchgoers. Arguably, preaching the whole fire and brimstone in decades gone past has done some harm. But also, the flip side is also true. Looking at and only understanding the loving Father heart of God is also unhelpful. It's not that we need one or the other. That, uh, sorry, it's not that we, not one or the other with God. We need both. So yes, while God is all loving and caring and longs for his people to be with him, uh, we're not going to go there much today. We're going to talk about judgment and condemnation instead. Sounds fun, hey? Now, as Etienne's done over the last weeks as well, he's included just a little bonus feature. I'd like to do the same this morning. Today I want to explore very quickly, before we dive in, very quickly, the dragon and the two beasts that are shown in today's passages. This uh, imagery is pretty funky and uh, almost certainly directly connects to political movements and leaders at the time it was written. Some say that the first beast represents Nero, some say other things, which may or may not be the case. One thing that is pretty clear, though, is the idea of the dragon and the two beasts. They are a mockery of the Trinity. Christians forever have tried to explain the Trinity. We believe in one God, but he's also three. We said it in the Apostles' Creed that Mike led us through. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all separate, but all together as well. Now, I can never answer every question you might have about this, but the Bible clearly talks about God is one, but he's also three. Anyway, in today's text, we do see a false trinity, a mockery of the real deal. Look at the dragon, aka Satan. He's kind of the boss of these two beasts, right? The dragon figure can be seen as a mockery of God, the Father. And then we have the beast out of the sea, the first beast with the fatal wound that has been healed. Does it sound kind of familiar? You know someone else who was fatally wounded but rose to life again? Yep, it's Jesus. This first beast is a mockery of Jesus, a cheap imitation of him. And then there's the second beast, you know, the one out of the earth. Look at the characteristics listed. It performs great signs. It even makes fire come down from heaven. It works in people's lives to instruct them to worship the first beast. Sounds a little like the Holy Spirit. That's because it's meant to. Again, these figures, the dragon and the two beasts, are presented so as to be a false trinity, directly opposed to God and the true trinity of Christianity. Now, this was interesting for me to uncover in my digging in and around this text. Now, while there may not be any direct application we can draw from understanding this, it's good to know, and it does give another layer of depth of understanding the Bible. And it also shows, again, just how deceptive and desperate Satan is to rule. Thankfully, we know the end of the story already, and he sure as heck does not win. 
So that's today's little micro bonus feature. Let's look at the text as a whole and try to see what's going on here. Let's look at chapter 13 first. If you have Bibles, by all means, have it in front of you, flick through it with me. What are the beasts? What do they represent? It's almost certain, as I said earlier, that the beasts represent different political powers of the time. I think a helpful way to look at these beasts is that they are simply representing, representative of something good that isn't. Maybe that, something that looks like following Jesus, but isn't. Maybe representing some sort of civil authority or political movement or cultural shift that is deceptive and seductive. Presenting as something good to be a part of, when if you dig past the surface, it's everything but good. Now, I know this is a very basic explanation and much more can be said on this topic, but let's move on. We've got more to uncover. Something that struck me when chatting with Etienne just the other day about this passage was my preconceived idea of what a beast looks like. Shout out to me. What comes to mind when I say the word beast? Dragon, yeah. What else? Satan, yeah. What about what a beast looks like? Jet, scary, sorry. Ugly, yeah. Anything else? Horns, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, one at the back somewhere. Scaly, yep, yep, yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> Beauty and the Beast for those on Zoom. Um, words like ugly, scaly, horns, horrible, abhorrent, fearsome. These kind of words come to mind first, don't they? Like we've just proven that now. But if you look at this text though, there's really nothing to suggest any of that. The beast is described as looking like a leopard with a bear's feet and a lion's mouth. Now, none of these creatures are inherently ugly. If anything, they're considered strong, majestic, and impressive. Sure, it has seven heads and all, but it's important to notice that it is not listed as some sort of hideous beast. This is also seen by the sheer numbers of people who worship it. All who dwell on the earth, except those who belong to God, worship it. It's not some disgusting, blood-oozing, obviously evil, scaly beast. Our first thought might lead us to think that, but I don't think that's the case. Also, the beast is convincing. It does miraculous things, and not to mention it somehow resurrected itself from the dead. You notice something else, though. The text doesn't say that some of the world followed the beast, some are written in the book of life, and then some are just sitting on the fence watching. There is clearly just two camps. Everyone is in one or the other. We see this through halfway through verse 7 and also into verse 8. Read along with me if you have it in front of you. Authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life uh, who was slain. All of humanity is either serving the beast or the lamb, with the lamb, of course, being Jesus. Now, like lots of what we read in Revelation, there are hundreds of questions that come into our minds as we read it. Like, what do we make of the first part of verse 7 that I just conveniently didn't mention, where it says, it, the beast, was allowed to make war on saints, that's those on Team Lamb, and to conquer them. What do we do with that? It's one thing for Satan to use and manipulate people who choose to follow him, but can Satan conquer believers? Can he really do that? Wouldn't God protect his people from this? 
Good questions. Ask Etienne later for the answers. <laughs> no, like lots of Bible reading and unpacking, there is way more here to unpack than we have the time for today. What I want to draw your attention to today, though, is first, the beast is not horrible and ugly, but alluring, attractive, even seductive. Many people put their faith in it because they believe what it says and have seen the evidence in the miraculous healing from the fatal wound as well as the other miracles, signs and wonders the beast can do. Second, the passage clearly shows there is no fence-sitting. You're either on team beast or team lamb. No in-betweens. Which begs the question, what team are you on? The assumption is that we're on team Jesus because, you know, we're, we're here on a Sunday morning, right? The problem with that assumption, though, is that it might not be right. Think about it. The beast looks to be powerful. It raises itself from the dead. It can do miracles. And the blasphemies that John talks about the beast saying are that the beast claims to be the Messiah. Like Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7, the road is wide that leads to death, while the narrow road only a few will find. And that path leads to life. Many people are on the wide road and they don't even realise it. That's why it's wide. It's easy to find. It has lots and lots of people on it. I think of other verses like Matthew 24. In verse 12, it says, The love of most will grow cold. But the love of some, the love of most. Many people will find and follow the beast. Not some hideous, demonic, evil creature. Well, it is, but it doesn't necessarily present as that. What might be a more helpful thing to say, or helpful uh, point to understand, is many will fall for the cheap imitation of Jesus found in the Bible. One that perhaps has been fabricated to suit a person's particular needs or desires. Or maybe even their idea of who Jesus should be for them. Many people will fall for this. It's super sad to think that people all over the world, people sitting in pews regularly, maybe even people here today, people who call themselves Christians have been duped and changed, changed out the true Jesus for the cheap imitation of him. One that suits their needs, one that works for them. And I think the Bible shows us pretty clearly that this is indeed the case. It worries me that some of us here are probably serving the cheap imitation Jesus. It worries me that at times I'm sure I fall for it too. Now frankly, this sucks to talk about and I'm trying to do so delicately and please know that it's done in love. Ask yourself, what team are you on? Team beast, team lamb. Don't be fooled by Satan's ploys. He is out to deceive us, to take us away from God, to take us from the narrow path onto the wide one without us even noticing. He wants you to be part of the many whose love will grow cold. Don't let him do that. We need to be grounded in Jesus. We need to know who he is. Uh, using one of my favourite Bible commentators, Kent Hughes, he concludes his thought on this particular part of Revelation with this paragraph. He says, Do you know Jesus? Or is it Jesus you know, a satanic Im imitation? The real Jesus is described in the four Gospels and the significance of the real Jesus is explained in the rest of the New Testament. The real Jesus died on the cross to ransom those who believe him from the consequences of their sin. 
the real Jesus is going to come and visit destruction on all his enemies. The real Jesus demands exclusive loyalty and worship. Does he have yours? Does Jesus have your total loyalty and worship? might sound ex- that extreme to say that sort of thing, but you know what else is extreme though? The way those who are not on Team Lamb are dealt with. This is graphically explained in chapter 14. This is where it becomes difficult to understand how the loving God that we hear so often about could do this. Well, like I said at the start, that loving grandpa figure of God is not the entire picture of who God is. He's also just. He's also the judge. He's also going to deal with sin and all who choose to serve the beast rather than him in a pretty harsh way. Harsh, but fair. So look at chapter 14 with me, starting at verse 9. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Just give that a moment to sink in. And to press this idea even further, I'd like to read a section from a book by the, guy, by the name James Joyce. His book is titled, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. I have no idea what the title means, but this picture he paints of hell stopped me in my tracks. Follow along with me. It should be on the screen behind me if that helps. He stood in the midst of a great hall, dark and silent, save for the ticking of a great clock. The ticking went on unceasingly. And it seemed to this saint that the sound of the ticking was ceaseless. Reception, a repetition of the words, ever, never, ever, never, ever to be in hell, never to be in heaven, ever to be shut off from the presence of God, never to enjoy the beatific vision, ever to be eaten with flames, gnawed by vermin, goaded with burning spikes, never to be free from these, those pains ever to have the conscience upbraid one, the memory in rage, the mind filled with darkness and despair, never to escape, ever to curse and revile the foul demons who gloat fiendishly over the misery of their dupes, never to behold the shining raiment of the blessed spirits, ever to cry out of the abyss of fire to God for an instant, a single instant of respite from such awful agony, never to receive even for an instant, God's pardon, ever to suffer, never to enjoy, ever to be damned, never to be saved, ever, never, ever, never. Oh, what dreadful punishment, an eternity of endless agony, of endless bodily and spiritual torment, without one ray of hope, without one moment of cessation, of agony limitless in intensity, of torment infinitely varied, of torture that sustains eternally that which it eternally devours, of anguish that everlastingly preys upon the spirit while it racks the flesh, an eternity, every instant of which is itself an eternity of woe. Such is a terrible punishment decreed for those who die in mortal sin by an almighty and just God. 
the consequences of choosing to follow the beast or being too lazy or indifferent to, to bother seeking out the Jesus of the New Testament are enormous. Now I know, I know, I'm wading into risky waters here. Following Christ is something that no one can do perfectly. Jesus died on the cross and he's forgiven us of all of our sin. And there's that age-old struggle of trying to grapple between both how faith and how works play a part in the role of a Christ follower. Can we simply say that we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins and then go on living however we want, following our own desires and pleasure? No. Understanding what Jesus did for us demands a response. Not because we need to do good stuff to get to heaven or to, to avoid hell, not at all, but because a genuine understanding of what Jesus did for you will cause you to want to follow him. You'll want to do what he wants. Again, we could speak for hours on this topic alone. But to keep it simple and brief, think of good relationships you have with other people. Do you want to please them? Do you sometimes want to do stuff that you don't necessarily like in order to bring them joy? Well, it's kind of the same as having a relationship with Jesus. We want to serve him. We don't have to. We want to because we love him and we want to bring him joy. Now, I'm also very aware that we've ducked and weaved a fair bit this morning. As I said at the start, it's a little snapshot into the inside of my brain where it just goes everywhere. But I, I hope you're still with me. And then it's also worth noting is this idea of God as a judge, it can bring up all sorts of questions and misunderstandings. Passages like this are very difficult to navigate. To bring us back on track to what I was, my main points I'm trying to make here, allow me to summarise them once more. So, the beasts look good. They're deceptive, seductive, powerful, and claim to be Jesus. They claim to offer the good life. Many, many people will fall for this, even those with bums regularly on church pews. There are also only two teams. Team beast and team lamb. There is no fence sitting. We've also seen what happens to those who are on Team Beast, who have pledged their allegiance to the Beast, eternal damnation, and forever being apart from what God, from, from God is what awaits them. So, two teams. One loses, one wins. We cannot just assume that we're on Team Lamb, because the Beast is a master recruiter and master deceiver. How then do we know what team we're on? A great place to uncover the answer to this question is the Bible, funnily enough, but more specifically, the book of 1 John. Not the Gospel of John, the letter. Right at the end of the Bible, just a few books before Revelation. A large part of why the Apostle John wrote this first letter was to address the question of, how do I know what team I'm on? This is seen at the end of the book in chapter 5, verse 13. He writes this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why John wrote the book. So if we look at John's letter, which we won't in detail right now, we can see he answers this question from several different angles. Put simply, John explains that our salvation depends solely on the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we continue to trust in him, we will experience the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And this looks like a life actively seeking to follow God's commandments. Those commandments are, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. 
We do this not because we have to, but because we want to. And when we see these things happening in our life, our assurance that we truly are one of God's children will grow. So I ask you again, which team are you on? Do you see yourself maturing more and more into the likeness of Christ? Or do you experience the Holy Spirit at work in your life? Do you seek to love God and others as best you can? These are all signs that you're on the right team. If that's you, fantastic. What a life that you get to live here on earth. And more than that, what a celebration there will be at the end of time. Either your time or the world's. You will be ushered into heaven by Jesus. And an eternity awaits. It awaits you spending the entire time in the presence of God. Wow. So, life here on earth. Hang in there. You might have noticed in the text there's that line, I can't remember it off the top of my head now, calls for patient endurance of the saints. Hang in there. The tough times as a Christ follower will all be worth it in the end. If you still don't know what team you're on, if you still don't know that you're on Team Lamb, if you don't see or experience the stuff in life, be warned. And if I'm honest, be mildly alarmed. To be clear, we're not in the business of scaring people into a relationship with God, with threats of hell and torment. That is not my heart, nor is it what I'm trying to do. And more than that, it's not God's heart either. We believe the Bible is true. And the Bible says this stuff, and we want to communicate the seriousness of it. So to wrap up, I'm aware this has been a little different, perhaps a little hard-hitting, and not the typical sermon that I love to preach. I don't love talking about hell. You know what, though? You don't have to be on Team Beast. You can join Team Lamb. It is not too late. This relationship with God is not out of reach of anyone. Jesus made a way, a way on the cross for us. His death, his resurrection and defeat over sin was for you. You need only believe it, trust him and seek to follow him from this point on. It's not too late. You do not have to be on Team Beast. Join Team Lamb. It will be the best decision you ever make. Now to close, John Dixon, a name to a few here, a familiar to a few here, hosts a podcast called Undeceptions. Now he recently uh, just released a podcast that covered the book of Revelation, just as we began it as a church, so that was pretty helpful. Um, firstly, check it out, because it's really good stuff. And secondly, during the podcast, a very simple summary of Revelation was helpfully stated in just three simple phrases. God's team wins, choose your team, don't be stupid. <laughs> Let's pray. God, thanks that you are going to win. Thanks that we can have a place on your team because of what Jesus did for us. God, we do not want to be on Team Beast. We don't want to be stupid. Help us to choose you, God. It can be tricky to know what to do and what to follow sometimes. Please help us. Give us guidance. Reassure our doubts. Help us follow you every moment of every day. Please keep working in our lives and drawing us to yourself, God. And we thank you for the many here who are on your team and have faithfully played their part in it. Please continue to lead, strengthen and equip in order to bring others into the winning team. Lord, you are so good. And we thank you that, you've been, that we have been given another day to be on your team, another day to provide opportunity for others to join. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks, Mike.